have tremendous respect for the BFC and what they've done over the years. And, you know, I was looking at the list of the former honorees and I sometimes have to pinch myself thinking that I would say being classified as as, as one of those. I, I, I look at Giorgio Armani and other names and think, uh, how did I end up? How did I ever end up being so fortunate? I am Susie Menkes, and you are listening to my podcast, Creative Conversations. As a journalist reporting on the global fashion industry, I want to take you backstage and give you an insight into my world. Listen to my exclusive conversations with creatives, industry leaders, and those whose voices have some of the greatest impact. I think you might find it interesting and maybe intriguing. This season's Fashion Awards at London's Royal Albert Hall drew all the glitterati and stars of our industry. But among the celebrations, it was also a sombre event as the fashion world paid tribute to the passing of the visionary designer Virgil Abloh. A self-taught lover of fashion with an extraordinary vision that took him from street style to Louis Vuitton, Virgil had one respect in a tough world, not least for the privacy of his life with his family as for his recognition in the wider universe. In spite of the sadness, the highlight of the evening was seeing Tommy Hilfiger, my American guest of the day, receiving an award. I spoke to Tommy Hilfiger just before he set off from Palm Beach, Florida, to London to receive the Outstanding Achievement Award. Tommy has received this award for his contribution to the global fashion industry and his continued commitment to creating an inclusive brand that champions people from all backgrounds and experiences and about what the award means to him. As Tommy Hilfiger celebrates 40 years of his brand, we go through his illustrious career, his fashion business school, owning the Karl Lagerfeld brand and his Waste Nothing and Welcome All sustainable program. Are you looking forward to coming to London? I am. I haven't been to London since our show at the Serpentine. It's almost, it's been two years. I was going to come in September, but obviously we didn't feel safe, so we cancelled. But I'm really looking forward to it. Well, let's start with the reason why you're coming, a special award. You should feel very proud because um, really so often... People don't get awards who deserve them. And in your case, everything seems to be going perfectly. So it's an outstanding achievement, we're told. So how do you feel about that? You must feel fairly um, impressed. I know you will have won many, many awards over the years. But um, this is a little bit of a special one, isn't it? Well, I'm honoured and grateful. And actually, I was shocked to receive the call or the, the email from Caroline. And... I have to say, I'm really excited about it. I never expected it. I have tremendous respect for the BFC and what they've done over the years. And, you know, I was looking at the list of the former honorees and I sometimes have to pinch myself thinking that 
I would say, being classified as, as, as one of those. I, I, I look at Giorgio Armani and other names and think, uh, how, did I end up, how did I ever end up being so well, fortunate? I should enjoy it all. You, you deserve it. And do you know um, the uh, Royal Albert Hall in London? It's a pretty spacious and extraordinary space. Well, it's iconic. And as a, as a music lover, you can just imagine that I am so excited to step foot into the hall itself. I mean, I'll have to just have all of my team photographing and videotaping every step of the way that evening because it will be a memory. And uh, I, I, I can't tell you how excited I am. Well, I'm, I'm happy about that, happy for you. And I have one word which is very obvious word, congratulations. Thank you, Susie. Thank you very much. I also um, would like to know how you've planned this trip to London. Um, are you getting some other things in? I mean, it's such a long time since COVID has stopped you and so many other people from coming to London. Um, are you going to try and make the most of it? I am. I'm going to be visiting our stores and our offices. I'm going to be speaking at the uh, BOF Voices conference at the Soho Farmhouse. I'm going to be doing a few other interviews. I'm going to be meeting with our CEO. Holly Rogers and Farfetch are hosting a lunch for my uh, my wife, Dio Klepo, who uh, has her own brand. So I'll be attending the lunch, staying at the Claridge's, which is always a big treat, and especially this time of year. So I'm looking forward to every moment. Um, I'd like to go right back to the beginning, a lot of which I didn't really know myself. So you opened your first store in People's Place and I scratched my head and thought, where is that? And then I realised this was your hometown, wasn't it? Upstate New York. And it was back quite a long way in 1969, am I right? That's correct. And... What did it feel like then? You had, I'm told that you had um, $150 in your hands and um, you were still in high school when you were determined to do something that was to last for you for 40 years from when you did it. How did you get that buzz that told you you wanted to do it? Well, it was really as a result of my obsession uh, with music, uh, rock music at the time. When I was in high school, you know, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and all of the, the rock groups started uh, doing concerts around the U.S. And when the English stars came to America, I, 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 I loved the way they put themselves together and, and how they dressed. So I opened my first shop as a jeans shop selling bell bottoms and cool hippie type rock style clothing to my school friends, and it eventually blossomed into uh, a multi-store chain. And while I was developing my retail uh, stores called People's Place, I decided I should start my own brand. So I started planting seeds for my own brand. I opened in 85, 1985. I was pretty impressed looking up on the um, times you did everything and your um, work within the actual fashion industry started much earlier than I realised. You, you've really been very good at mentoring uh, the next generation and maybe even the one after it, the aspiring designers, to whom your name is an icon. 
T- tell us a little bit about how you find people to mentor and how you find it working with them. Well, I'm connected to the design schools in, in, in New York and now the rest of the world. But uh, I, I've always wanted to mentor young people who have talent and work ethic who may not normally have opportunity. And that is why we created the People's Place program so we could unlock the doors to the fashion industry for especially young people of color who may not have the same opportunity as others. Uh, Is this part of a general feeling of your family to be very open in a way that some Americans, I'm sorry to say, are not, to all kinds of people. And um, I know that you've, you've got two of your siblings, haven't you, who work alongside you. So have I got this right, Andy and Betsy? Yes. And so how is it trying to establish a sort of business school? Um, was that something that you all did together, all three of you? Uh, yes, it's actually a family endeavor. In my hometown of Elmira, New York, there is a college called Elmira College that was established in the 1800s as the first all-women's private college in in New York. So now it is co-ed after many years, but they have the Tommy Hilfiger Fashion School of Business today. And a lot of what we teach is uh, surrounded by the idea that in order to be successful in this business, you have to understand the business part of, of, of fashion. And you also have to understand the merchandising and marketing part of it, not just design. I hope you're going to say those words when you collect your award, because there are some absolutely marvellous and skillful designers. I always tell them to go and work and make their mistakes at someone else's expense. But they're always so enthusiastic, they rush into making clothes and putting their name up in lights. And um, what you've just said, I think, is so true that you've, you've got to take these things steadily, haven't you, if you're trying to grow an empire as you have done? Absolutely. You have to really understand what is really behind the scenes. And you have to understand that, that the engine behind any brand has to do with uh, making the proper business decisions in marketing, merchandising and uh inventory controls, all, all of the things that may be boring to, to designers. But I learned the hard way because in my early days, just after five years after I started my, my People's Place business, I didn't really understand a thing about the business part of it. And I had to file bankruptcy. I did get back on my feet, but I taught myself the business of the fashion business as a result of that blunder. You have also got a certain um, amount of modesty beside you. Probably all your family will laugh that I use that word. But I notice how you seem so prepared to work with other people. Um, You've just joined forces, I think, this fall season with Timberland. How did it come about? Well, we're always open for collaborations. And we've had some successful collaborations with uh, individuals. However, as a result of having a successful collaboration with Vetmont a couple of years ago, and then another very successful collaboration with Kith two years ago. We thought uh, doing some sort of a collaboration with another brand that had iconic features would 
be able to marry with our iconic features in product. And Timberland was really, I would say, one of the best choices because we have similar heritage going way back 35 plus years as brands. And during the, I would say, early 90s, late 80s, people were wearing Tommy Hilfiger jeans and Tommy Hilfiger sportswear with Timberland boots. So we thought it would be a great marriage. It's so good to hear you saying these words, so thoughtful and so interesting, which of course is part of your history. But um, I'm also pleased having had last week talking in my podcast, Christopher Rayburn, the British designer. He's very interesting, I find, because um, he's always looking for collaborations. But he is so much um, somebody who has believed in the 10 or perhaps it's even 12 years that he's worked um, the whole um, thing about reusing and remaking. And um, he's sort of been around the world, especially to um, where there are army goods and discovered that once army uniforms come, then they're junked and um, nothing happens to them. And he has made a whole series of um, clothes in that way. And I sort of felt that it's somehow in your spirit that to clothes that people really want to wear, but they've got a story behind them. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. I don't know Christopher, but I, I know who he is. And I've seen photographs of, of his collection and I was obviously very impressed uh, because in the early days when I didn't have enough volume, enough uh, money for inventory, I would buy army surplus and embellish the army surplus. I would buy the white uh, army surplus paratrooper pants and over dye them. So I would embellish and I would dye and cut and recut and sew. But uh, today, because of our keen interest in becoming a sustainable brand, we have uh, a saying in the company that we, we waste nothing and we welcome all. So what we're doing now is we're people are trading in their Tommies. So this uh, Tommy for Life program has been established. And we're recutting, resewing, repairing, cleaning, and uh, reselling. So we think that that's very important to be sustainable. And that's one of our big efforts in sustainability. something perhaps you won't be quite so eager to discuss and that is the fact I can't really believe this that you turned 70 this year well it's it's true and it's it's reality I can't believe it myself I mean I thought when I turned 60 it was uh, a milestone but now that I'm 70 I'm thinking of how fortunate I am to have my health and I, I think that if we have our health we have everything so I think it's it's also an, a state of mind and how you feel. So I, I don't feel 70. I feel much younger, and I, I don't know what age that would be, but I feel substantially younger. You certainly look much younger, especially in that cap of yours. You <laughs> I was just out on a, a morning walk and then a COVID test, and now I'm ready to go. I'm sure you're always ready to go. But there's been a lot of um, change in your office and in your business. And I think that 
you know, particularly as you're giving a talk in, in Great Britain, that a lot of them will be quite surprised to understand or to study um, what you've done. In I think it was in 2006, you sold your um, Hilfiger company for $1.6 billion. Um, dollars, and um, then they sold it on for even more. But you still remain the um, company's principal designer. Um, what is a typical day in the way that you work? You know, I look at the number of stores you've got. I look at the number of things that you do, and including the work you've done um, recently to um, help all sorts of people. And I think, how does he do it? How do you fit it all in? Well, I think juggling family and business is always a, a challenge because I have a number of children and I'm trying to always balance that as best as possible. But I'm so passionate about the business and I never wanted to sell the entire business. I wanted to sell a part of the business that would be managed by someone else. And that is like the, the logistics and the running of the day-to-day business part, which is not obviously as glamorous or as exciting as doing the, I would say, creative part. But I'm more the visionary of the brand. Uh, I am really involved in the image of the brand. And I would say motivating the team from a long distance vision standpoint. I'm always looking way ahead, thinking about where we should go and how we should get there. So I love visiting the stores. I love the people. I love meeting the different people, including the consumers, the customers themselves. And I like listening to what is going on out in the field so we can apply it to being better at everything we do. Now, tell me about meeting people and especially a certain person. It was in 2004, I think, that you um, obtained Karl Lagerfeld's personal business. And um, I'd love to know what that was like. I, I imagine that he, he spoke to you and did he give you any orders, any ideas? Well, we became friendly and obviously I was completely in awe of Karl and his genius, and I know you knew him well, so there was never a dull moment in speaking with him about anything and everything. But I was having uh, breakfast at his, at his house one morning. He invited me for an early breakfast before he started out on his busy, busy day. And he asked how, you know, how my business was going, and I, I told him it was going well, but as a public company, we were thinking, that maybe we should buy another brand. So he said, well, why don't you buy my brand? So we jumped at the opportunity. We bought the Karl Lagerfeld brand. But I think the most interesting part of it was that I asked him one day how Chanel had been so successful under his eye. And he said, in his incredible accent, he said, it is, it is very easy I go back to the archive and I take the best ideas and make them relevant for today. So I took that whole conversation back to my design team in New York. And I said, let's cherish and protect and utilize our archives because they're going to be the most valuable asset we have in the future. So we began redesigning a lot of the archival looks to make them more relevant for today. 
I think your brother Andy once told me that he spent a lot of time doing that, looking at the past, but making sure that it was relevant and modern um, if you um, used something again. Is, is that basically the, the way it was done? That's correct. But taking the inspiration from the past and making it more modern and new for today. grouping is um, close to your heart. What do you think, though, that the future holds for it? I, I, I find it very difficult. I hadn't been allowed until this point to um, go to America. When I say I haven't been allowed, no Brits have been allowed. We, it is open up now. But what do we think about virtual reality and the idea of some designers are doing now of saying, well, we don't want to go back to those shows for a bunch of journalists and buyers. We'd rather try our newer system. How do you feel about all that? I think we have to continue to evolve forward without losing the essence of the past. But I think that uh, we, we are really living in an age where digital and virtual are at our doorstep. So we have to embrace it. And we have to embrace it in a way that makes it understandable and also makes it exciting and, and, and fresh and new. I think that we're embarking on a whole world of what uh, we're calling the metaverse, where we mix virtual with reality. And I, I think it's going to make uh, the fashion business even more exciting. But I think that it has to be done in a way that is exciting and new and fresh and not too abstract, because if it becomes too abstract, the public won't understand it. You were about the first serious designer who latched on to the see now, buy now craze. Is this something that you still practice? I, I've got a bit lost on it, to be truthful. Um, and, and were the customers, did they respond well? Were they grateful to you for bringing clothes faster? I don't know. To be honest, it seems a little bit to me now that we're all talking about slow fashion, about thinking more before we buy and all these things that hopefully we will do, that somehow the buy now idea seems a little difficult to accept. When we did it, it was really about opening up the fashion shows to the public and allowing the public to buy whatever they saw on the runway. It was an enormous obstacle to actually create the product that uh, would be available at the show, all of the product on the runway, not just an item or two. And it became hugely successful for us. But that led us into the thinking of what to do next into the future. And we really believe that the metaverse is, is next, but we have to go about it in a very sensible way, as I said before. I think that it made a lot of sense for the consumer to be able to buy whatever they would see walking down the runway as a result of their desire for immediate gratification. They're using their devices, whether it's a phone or an iPad, they're using devices. They want to be able to shop 24 seven, anywhere, anytime, and get anything that they see without having to wait for it. In years past, we would look at the magazines 
or look at look at photos from a show and wait for six months, eight months for for that merchandise to arrive in the in the shops. And anymore, the photographs and the videos are shown from the runway over and over and over on all the different celebrities. Uh, by the time the merchandise reaches the selling floor, uh, the customer is maybe getting a bit bored. They've seen it already. They want something new and fresh that they haven't yet seen. What you say there brings me to my last question for you, which is how you feel about the next generations that are already upon us. I mean this perhaps even in your own family or in the much wider world. Do you think that it's inevitable that for fashion to be really powerful, that it changes, that the kind of attitude you yourself personally had towards fashion and what you were personally or what other people were, does it have to change as there are different situations, there are different people, there's different things going on in the world? Is it very much fashion a reflection of the world or can you change the world? Oh, that's a loaded question. So I think that individualism is is very important. And I think that young people today want to be individuals. However, they do fall into the trap of becoming part of a tribe. So as much as they think that they're being uh, individuals in the way they're dressing or putting themselves together, they do become part of uh, a a look, you could say. Like in LA, there's a certain look that is incredibly casual, laid back and relaxed. And in Tokyo, it's more fun and youthful. So it's not completely homogenized throughout the world. I think that young people believe that they can make a difference in changing the world. And I love the fact that they're so hyped on sustainability because we really have to protect and cherish our earth. I mean, I really believe that uh, we have to have faith in the generations coming up and we have to respect their thoughts and the way they want to do things. Now, they will not always be right. I'm sure they'll make a lot of mistakes, but I think we have to listen to them and I think we have to watch very closely at what they're saying and, and where they're going. Some of them are too political, maybe, but the sustainability part is very important. I've always felt that the um, stories in the fashion world come out in some way or another and that they are truthful in the end. And um, I think one of the things that you have done, if we look back at your now long history, is this whole idea of inclusivity, having a brand that champions people from all kinds of backgrounds and experiences. And that is something to be so commended. I think now more than ever, we have need to try and make everybody inclusive, that we're not having tribes in the way that there's been in the past. And the thing that um, makes me happiest is when I see people and they're wearing things that really are telling a story and making a difference. And you are one of those people. So many congratulations. Thank you, Susie. That, that is a big compliment. We don't view it as something new that we're doing. I've been doing it for now 51 years because I opened People's Place, as you said, in 1969. And I called it People's Place because I wanted it to be for the people. I wanted it to be for everyone. And I, I've never changed my motive. I've never changed my stance on it. And I've always been incredibly inclusive. The fashion shows you've watched over the years, they've always been inclusive and diverse. So it's not something new we're doing because of 
Black Lives Matter or any of uh, what is going on today. I think a lot of people think that uh, because of what has happened in the recent past, they should jump on the bandwagon and all of a sudden hire diversity officers and hire more people of color. We've always done that. So thank you for recognizing it. And I, I appreciate the compliment. Well, enjoy your award, which you so richly deserve. And um, I'm looking forward to seeing you running around London. Thank you very much, Susie. I look forward to seeing you. And it's always a pleasure. Thank you. All the best. And to you. Tommy Hilfiger, congratulations on the award. It really is so wonderful to see you flourish over the past 40 years and now look forward to the next 40. Join me next time when I shall be talking to the shoemaker of dreams, Manolo Blahnik, as he celebrates his golden anniversary of 50 years in the shoe business and the launch of the Manolo Blahnik Archives, a new way of walking. Creative Conversations with Susie Menkes is produced by Natasha Cowan, music by Jörg Zuber, graphics by Paul Wallace, and edited by Tim Thornton. To find my articles, visit susiemenkes.com and susiemenkes on Instagram. If you've enjoyed the podcast, then please do rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends. You can find me on all the usual channels. <laughs>